Welcome to the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast, where we bridge the gap between you and your goals with science and sustainability in your health, nutrition, mindset, and lifestyle journey. I hope you share and enjoy. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast. I'm your host, Christina Lynn, and I'm here with my co-host, Marissa Roy. And in today's episode, we're doing part two, and we're going to be busting some additional fitness myths. Some more myths. Part dose. I'm excited. This is going to be fun. Yeah, me too. So the first one, interesting. Keto? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kicking off with a hot one. Um, okay. So like, what's the myth around this though? Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a myth. You wrote it down. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember that, but I I think maybe, maybe the, I don't know if it's necessarily a myth or it's just kind of this like hot topic that like keto is the answer for fat loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And keto, like, I mean, we can lump in low carb in there. Um, and I think, yeah, I guess kind of where I think I'm coming from with that is a lot of people only know keto through the lens of weight loss marketing and the weight loss industry. And keto actually was originated to help with epilepsy and neurological disease, because when you have that balance of fats to carbs to protein, your body does shift to producing ketones and using ketones. Uh, which is a different energy system, which for whatever reason, uh, helps with the either helps slow down the degeneration of your nerves in things like MS or, uh, with epilepsy. And I don't know the neurophysiology of epilepsy, but I just know that it was developed for that by literal like neuroscientists. So, uh, that was kind of the background of it. So I think it's just understanding that it was never made for weight loss in the first place. However, it gained a lot of traction. And now there's a bunch of subsets of keto that are like, you know, modified high protein keto and like traditional keto. And like, you could, you could go down the rabbit hole of all the different kinds that there are, but essentially the gist of it is when you cut out an entire food group, which is carbs, uh, it, I mean, the logic behind it is it makes it easier to sustain a calorie deficit. And for a lot of people, carbs can be something that is difficult to have in moderation or a lot of people, carbs are things that if you do have prediabetes, diabetes, high blood sugar, something like that, you're going to be more likely to want to do something that's low carb because you just know that association so well in your mind. Um, and typically very black and white rules just make it easier for people to adhere to some extent. I think, when you're kind of really dialed in and that mindset, it's like, Oh, I don't have to think about it. It's easier. But I think what we lack is that part of easier doesn't necessarily mean that it's easier overall in terms of sustainability and like actually keeping that weight off. So the, the area where I get concerned when somebody wants to go that route is, but is that the way you're going to live forever? And if the answer is yes, then like, awesome, good. Great. But I just don't know many people where that's truly the case. Like there have been like a very small handful that I've come across in my life that truly feel that they could 
live, live, live that way, like forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's interesting where you have something like keto and then you have all these like subsets, right? You have modified keto, you have like high protein keto, you have this keto, you have that. Cause like traditional keto is like 70 to 75% fat from total calories. And then, yeah, which is a lot moderate protein, 20 to 25%. And then carbs are like five to 10. So very, very, very low. And that is very hard to sustain yeah. because you're not eating a whole heck of a lot. That's, I mean, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, it's like you go into the net carbs thing where you're counting net carbs. And I mean, now there's like all of quest nutrition is keto friendly, but at the same time, I think traditional, traditional keto is much more, um, much more like you're, you're really not having that many vegetables still. Right. And so I think what people who market keto as a weight loss solution try to do is, you know, trying to kind of make it healthier by having more fibrous vegetables, having more things that in- increase the amount of variety of types of food that you're going to be eating so that you, you know, it's more palatable and you can eat more of it and you can have these, you know, fun snacks and things that are keto friendly. And I think that that's, that's great and all, but at the same time, like if really, if you're like adhering to like the day one, like this is, this was made for epilepsy. Like you're, you're probably just going to be eating a lot of fatty meats and cheese, maybe not cheese. I don't know. And eggs and you know, all the things. So it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about too, cause like, I know a lot of people will, will say like, oh, well, I'm so full. Like I can't eat as much. And oh, yeah, that, exactly. I feel like that's, that's true when you're choosing higher fat, higher protein options. And yeah, absolutely. You're going to feel more full than if you were to eat just like empty carbs. Um, and this goes back to our part one conversation when like, and this is my, um, this is my thing with people who are vegetarian or vegan or that paleo or whatever. And they're like, well, I just feel so much better. I feel so much healthier. And it's like, well, yeah, because what you were eating before was a bunch of processed crap. You were eating low protein <laughs> and then you switched to this diet. So it's not the diet itself. It's just the food choices that you're making. And like, so that's my big thing with like, if you go from one place, if you go from eating one thing and you go to another, is it the diet or let's dissect it? Like, what are you eating and how is that different for how you were eating before? And almost, can you kind of like blend those two things to make it more sustainable and realistic in the long term? Yeah. Cause it, yeah. Cause it's just separating the behaviors from the label, because at the end of the day, what most people, what I think most people want having have after having talked to thousands of women is really being able to have the majority of your diet be nutrient dense, high protein, leafy greens, vegetables, fruits, starchy carbohydrates that are complex. That's the majority of our diet. And every now and again, I have something that's a little more fun and processed or things like that. That's, that's really what we like all desire, I think. Uh, but we do get caught up in these labels of, well, I'm doing this one thing and this worked for me, uh, when in reality, it was the fact that that category of rules that you assigned under that label, which was whether it's keto, Atkins, paleo, whatever, it doesn't matter, whatever you assigned uh, to that forced your behavior to change to selecting those foods that we know are going to make us feel better and more energized. And then 
Yeah. And, and then we, we assign it as that diet worked for me versus like, I changed my behaviors. I made I changed my food choices and I felt better. Uh, and I think they're one and the same, but it's, it's the labels that really, I think, get people angry on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, <clears throat> keto, if you feel like it's something that you can do in the long run, then, you know, if you feel better and then absolutely go for it, but it is oh. not the, sorry, one more thing. You're yeah. talking about satiety with the like, uh, fats and protein and everything. I just wanted to clarify why that is right. So mm-hmm. macronutrient wise protein has the highest satiety factor per gram. So if you eat like all protein, you're, you're going to have a hard time eating more calories. If you're just eating protein, because it's so satiating fat is number two carbs are last, meaning that even though carbs can have a lot of fiber, they still won't satiate us for as much or as long as a fatty food or a high protein food. And so another reason why high protein, high fat, low carb, quote unquote works is that it's harder to get in as many calories period, because you are just not as hungry. You don't have cravings. It's going to cut those because you're actually just so full from all the satiating macronutrients. So I just, I, for anybody who maybe didn't know the satiety factors of the three macronutrients, that's why that's the case. Yeah. And I think another thing that we probably should have touched on is like, when you reduce your carb intake to five to 10%, like you are depleting glycogen stores. Right. And like, that is typically what you're yes. So water. So you are going to appear like less inflamed, less puffy, and you're probably going to drop a lot of weight very, very quickly, which is why I think it has this appeal and so many people like feel the effects of it right away. So it's like, Oh, keto worked for me. Um, but if you are someone who has to do keto and then you stop and then you regain weight and you feel like you have to do keto again and again and again, then I would argue, I don't think it actually worked for you because you cannot maintain the weight loss. So I think that that's something important to to touch on. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause if you, I think we had talked about in the last part one, how, when you eat carbohydrates, uh, if you have them a little bit in excess, they're actually not stored immediately as fat. They're stored as glycogen in the muscle cell, which is fuel that's stored for later for training sessions for it's going to be used, which is awesome. Cause it's like, cool. It's not fat. That's awesome. But it still shows up as weight on the scale. So one gram of glycogen, uh, or carbs as glycogen stores three grams of water with it. So you know, that that's a lot of water weight that you could be dropping by just depleting yourself of all carbohydrates, pounds and pounds across your body of water weight. And that's why I think people, you know, what I hear a lot, you probably hear this a lot too, is like, I just need something to get me started and then I'll be good. Right. I just need to, I just need to get the ball rolling and then I'm good. And I think that's what it does so well. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, once you keep going, it, there's really, it's easy to plateau from there. It's also hard to keep it going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, we'll move on to the next topic that we have. And I love this one is feeling sore means I had a good workout. And again, this is one of the things where it's like, logically it makes sense, right? I can feel my muscles. That means I must've really worked them. I really, you know, tore them down and, and I'm going through the recovery process and it drives me nuts because I know that all these fitness professionals know this Yet whenever they start up a new program or new challenge, you're like, oh, I did day one of my challenge and oh my God, I'm so, I'm feeling it. It's a good one. And I'm like, you know, you know what you're doing. Like you're just using it as like a marketing tactic, 
but that's not necessarily the case. Like just because you have, uh, you know, DOMS, so delayed onset muscle soreness doesn't necessarily mean that you had a good workout. Yeah. So actually this is really funny because do you watch anything from like Renaissance periodization? No. So they do, but you know who they are. Mm, They do like, they have like a diet app and like programming and everything like that. It's like a pretty big company. So uh, I forget what the guy's name is, who is like running that, but basically like they do this series on YouTube. That's like exercise scientist shits on this person's this, or this person's that, or exercise scientist breaks down this or whatever. And there was an episode where, uh, the guy at RP, God, I can't remember his name, but he, uh, he had Jeff Nippert on. And oh, okay. Yes. I've seen that clip. Where they are arguing about like uh, getting sore. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so like, I, I thought that was yeah. so funny because it's just two really smart guys, like having a really healthy debate about soreness and muscle soreness. So it's like, I actually can appreciate feeling sore after a good workout. And I think the idea that you shouldn't be sore isn't necessarily true, but it's, is it the best indicator? Right. So but basically the gist of it was like, Jeff was on the side of like, soreness is not a good indicator of a good workout, but then, you know, what's his face. I can't remember his name was like, well, like, honestly, I think if you are in this situation or that situation or that situation, like you should probably be sore. Otherwise, like I should, I would be concerned about your progress. You know what I mean? Um, so I think the gist of it is like soreness is a good indicator that you're pushing yourself regularly in a training program, like let's say you're doing a regular training program that's scheduled week to week to week. If you get consistently less sore over time, over the course of that program, that is normal. And you shouldn't be concerned about that. But I think that there should still be like, especially at the beginning of a new block or a new like set of exercises or anything new that you do, you should absolutely feel soreness because it's new. And that is what soreness is a great indicator of is novelty. Um, and our body's adapting to that, but then And I think if you're never sore, that's a, that's not a good thing because then like, are you really pushing yourself, you know? Uh, So it's, it's just so gray, but I loved that discussion. I was eating it up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, but I, I, I feel like I kind of, I don't, I agree, agree with Jeff, but then the other guy was making some good points too, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I lean a little bit more towards Jeff's side of things um, because I feel like not everyone trains as hard as what that other guy wants you to be training as hard as right so like um I don't know I just I feel like most people don't push themselves to the point where they're like trying to PR they're trying to do all this stuff and like Jeff's argument was like well I could you know I could go snowboarding or I could do Pilates and I've never done that before and like I'm gonna be sore as hell the next day and that doesn't necessarily mean I had a good workout it just means like I haven't used maybe those muscles before I've never done those like movement patterns. And so like, I'm going to be sore. Um, so I just think that's something almost kind of like blending the two thoughts, but just kind of knowing at the end of the day, kind of like you were saying is just because I'm not sore as fuck the next day, doesn't mean that you didn't have a good workout. Yeah, exactly. So the gist of it is like, you should absolutely track the weights that you're using, the workouts that you're doing so that, you know, okay, I progressed from last week to this week. That is progress. That is my indicator. If I am sore as a result, 
great. My body is clearly having trouble adapting to this stimulus. Um, if I am consistently sore all the time doing a structured program to the point where I'm crippled, maybe there's a recovery problem. Uh, but if I am never sore, not at the beginning, not in the middle, not in the end, not when I'm pushing myself, like question mark, I think we should look at your exercise intensity, uh, because I think you should definitely like starting a new training block, feel it a little bit after the first week or two weeks. Um, and then it should die out or die down from there. Yeah. I'm also thinking back to like how I used to train in like 2014, 2015, where we had one leg day a week. And it was brutal and you were so sore the next day. And then you're like, Oh, it's leg day again, a week later. But when I bumped my, my frequency up and my volume, but well, maybe not necessarily volume, but, but just the frequency in which I trained and I started to do two to three leg sessions, I wasn't having that like intense soreness after every single leg session. And so it kind of broke that idea that like, Oh, Like I can train legs more frequently. I don't have to be like, you know, the, all I felt like back in the day, it was like all those memes, like you'd have to use like a walker to go to the bathroom and like to sit down. But every now and again, every now and again, I enjoy that feeling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I know that you do, (laughs) but generally I want to be able to move. So, um, yeah, but yeah. And I think we, we talked about this in another episode, um, (laughs) you know, the trainers in Brazil where they like push yeah. you past failure failure. And it's like the women are like screaming, crying, and like, they're basically being forced past failure, um, with assistance. And like, if you kick in, if you can't walk for like the next two to three weeks, it's like, was that really a good session in the long run? I mean, maybe like, maybe in the sense of like, you get to see what you're like made of and like you you figure out you can push yourself a little harder or something like that but that should not be the goal of every single session if you are too sore to hit legs for the next two weeks after that then like that's not as beneficial if you were just to to chill a little bit (laughs) yeah that's a fun one I mean every now and again it's like yeah go ham when maybe you're training with someone you don't normally train with you're visiting a fun new gym you want to try some new equipment out go crazy absolutely do it wreck yourself whatever but generally week to week day to day you should be able to move after your training sessions and just being sore and and really the gist behind it is don't chase soreness don't chase let me do a new workout so I can get sore in a different way. And, you know, chasing that is going to be the enemy of your progress. Like the majority of this conversation was talking about a structured training program, but what a lot of people do is they bounce from thing to thing to thing, and they don't have any gauge of progressive overload. So they just gauge it on soreness. So don't do that. Yeah. 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 Hey, hey, if you're not driving and you're liking this episode, just take two seconds and support our show by giving it a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. These ratings and reviews just allow us to bring more knowledgeable and influential people onto this show for you to learn everything possible about science and sustainability with respect to your goals. And if you like this episode, just screenshot it and tag us on Instagram to show your support. One share really could be the catalyst for someone in your life to transform their body, their health, and their fitness for good. And of course, it helps our show grow too, and we appreciate that. All right, back to the show. Uh, 10,000 steps a day. 
so this is an interesting one. So do you know the, like, I'm sure you, you know, the story behind it, right? I don't know. I thought like Apple just like came out with it or something. No. So actually I think it was in the sixties, this like doctor in Japan created this pedometer and it was something, whatever the pedometer's name, it had something to do with like the 10,000 steps, like meter. And so like his research suggests something along the lines of like, you walk 10,000 steps, it's like good for like cardiovascular health. And then that translated and like came over into the US and we picked that up. And then it was just kind of like this magical number. I feel like it's almost like everyone has the 12,000 calories Uh or 1200 calories and then like 10,000 steps. Like those are like the magical numbers that everyone knows. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, the answer to that is that it's not a magical number and 10,000 steps a day is great, but it can also vary. It can be a little bit less. It could be a little bit more depending on your lifestyle. Um, but really kind of the reference point that I always go back to is, uh, when there, there was, there was one study that looked at the relationship between like step count, body weight, overall health and mortality rates, outcomes, that sort of thing. And there was a J-shaped curve when it came to that. Um, or no, 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 no. There was uh, just, well, I'm mixing up studies in my head. Generally, what is considered sedentary from the research is 5,000 or less steps per day. So if you are getting less than 5,000, you would be considered sedentary and there are more negative metabolic health outcomes to not getting more than 5,000 steps per day. Um, but when you get into the five to seven range, seven and above, like seven and above is considered like pretty active. Uh, all of that is, is really positive. So like, honestly, I think the threshold for just like making it an active lifestyle is much more in that seven range than it actually is 10. And the only reason why I kind of like to harp on that is because 10 can be tough. Like if you don't, it, it's actually very easy for me now for the first time ever because of having a walking pad. So I'm able to walk for multiple hours at a very slow pace every day. But without that, no, like I would never, like I was, I would always struggle to stay in that like seven range and uh, with just a sedentary job. So I think it's just important to keep that context in mind of like, you could be trying really hard, going on walks, going outside. That's really what the the numbers trying to get you to do is to move. And if you fall short of 10, it's totally fine. Yeah. And I, again, I feel like you and I both started getting a little bit more into like neat and, and tracking our activity. Was it back in like 2018? For me, it was like 2019 or 2020. Yeah. 28. Yeah. Um, maybe 2020. Cause I know for 2018, we talked about how, like, I yep. wish I did. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then I think that 2020, that was my first prep where I actually started being more cognizant of my steps and yeah. like tracking it as data. Um, but yeah, it, it's just like super interesting. And I know that some people don't like wearing them because they feel like they get obsessive with numbers, but I don't think it's like you have to hit a certain amount every single day. It's just kind of like, what do you need to do to be more active and just having that like awareness of like, 
oh, if I work from home and I sit at my computer all day long, it is very easy for me to get a couple thousand steps for the day. So like, I need to be proactive. I need to be going on walks. I need to have a walking pad. If I, I know I'll be more active if I leave my house, right? If I go to yeah. Target or if I go to the gym and, um, you know, I'm walking in between, you know, machines and I'm walking around during sets, um, that helps because if you have no idea, it it's, I think it's very easy to underestimate how much activity you actually get. Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's actually pretty common that people underestimate their activity and their calorie intake. Um, but really, yeah. Or they overestimate their activity and underestimate calorie intake. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, even, even dietitians, so. like, so even like experts and I'm yeah. sure we probably do that a little bit too, but oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, I'm pretty bad at it actually. So <laughs> uh, it's just the accountability aspect, but I mean, if you don't have a tracker like that, one mile is roughly 2000 steps. So, you know, do the math. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think they also say, uh, about 10 minutes of like leisurely walking on a treadmill or a walking pad is about a thousand steps. Yeah. So that, that tracks, that tracks. Yep. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. So we will move on to the myth that women need to work out differently than men or that they need to avoid heavy weights because they're going to get bulky. Yeah. Hopefully after, if you've listened to this podcast before, hopefully you don't have that myth, but maybe this is your first time listening. Um, this doesn't really align, um, or, you know, it's like the, the analogy, like, oh, I'm scared that if I like pick up a weight, I'm like going to accidentally like get on stage at the Olympia and like be this bodybuilder. Yeah. Or it's, so it's like the same thing. It's like, well, I don't, I'm, you know, afraid to drive my car because I'm, you know, afraid I'm going to turn into a NASCAR driver. It's like, that's not, that's not how that works. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So in order to build that much muscle, even men need to like, in order to build muscle as quickly as I think we are afraid to, even a man would have to be on steroids for that to happen. But as a female, we have, you know, a tiny fraction of the muscle building hormones like testosterone that uh, are anabolic as men. And unfortunately we are going to have a very hard time building muscle. So a lot of times you see like the rep range is like, go like lighter weight for 15 reps for toning and do four to six reps for bulking or strength. And like, it's like those, it's kind of a misconstrued way of communicating how to tailor your training towards different goals. Um, because technically higher rep ranges lend themselves more to muscle hypertrophy, which is growth of the muscle, which if you grow muscle and you lose fat, that is what being toned is, but, uh, lower rep ranges are more geared towards building strength. However, you can build muscle at any rep range, every single one. If you challenge yourself, you'll build muscle. Yeah. And I know that, um, mind pump, they've talked about this on a, on a couple different episodes, um, one of the hosts, Sal, he worked at a gym at a very, they're in their forties. So this was like back when he was like a teenager, he worked at the gym and they had, they started creating like women only workout rooms. And he mm. was like the gym closed. And I went in there and I looked and it was like, just like pink and purple and like same machines and same weights, but they were smaller. They were lighter, but they were like pink and purple, but everything was the same. 
Yeah. And he was like really confused. And basically what happened is gyms were just being marketed to men. And so the people who were like, who own gyms were like, well, how do we, how do we get more women to come into our gyms? Because that's, we're isolating half of the population and we're losing out on a lot of money. So they basically took fitness and marketed it towards women as something new and something different. And if you use light weights, then you're not going to get bulky, like the guys that are lifting over there. And that's kind of how this like thing came about, um, this like misconception that like, we have to train differently than men. We have to have different sections of the gym than men. Um, but like you were saying before, it's like, it is very, 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 very difficult to put on muscle. And we've been doing this for longer, like 10 plus years. And we're still, I'm at least for me, I'm not anywhere near as muscular as I would like to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think it goes the same for like women's supplements, like they're labeled pink and whatever. It's like, they're just trying to upsell you. It's the same mm-hmm. shit. Just look at the ingredients list, compare it to the male equivalent. I promise you it's the same thing. Um, I mean, there's like hormonal products that are geared towards like estrogen versus testosterone. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about like pre-workout, like pre-workout for ladies, like it's the same shit, maybe just a little bit less caffeine because caffeine is typically dosed based on your body weight. So like we are smaller usually than men in general. So yeah, less caffeine. <laughs> yeah. And and I will say kind of like we, we talk about in every single episode, like there is some level of like individual, like variability, right? Like there are some women who are fast gainers, like they're able to put on muscle at a quicker rate than most people. But for the majority of women, like we're, we're not going to get bulky. We're not going to have a masculine appearance. Um, your voice isn't going to drop. Like you're not going to have any of these things happen to you unless you're taking like steroids. Um, but that doesn't accidentally happen. Um, so I'll even like push back a little bit on the whole, like when there are women that are fast gainers, because there's going to be women that listen to this, that put themselves in that category. And those are not the ones we're talking about. <laughs> like yeah. Dana Lynn Bailey is somebody who has great genetics for building muscle. And I personally believe that she is a lifetime natural, like she claims to be, which is why she, you know, never competed past those Olympias that she was in, uh, because it just got too too competitive for her. Um, so I, I mean, I think she is a great example of somebody who is very muscular and has the genetics for it. But I think a lot of women who say I have very muscular thighs, I have very muscular arms. And I don't really know a way to say this without sounding like a dick, but I've said it before. So I'll just say it again. I think ultimately when we strength train, we don't realize how much our metabolism is ramping up as a result of it. And a lot of times our appetite can really, really increase as a result. So when we strength train without the proper guidance or awareness around nutrition, we might think that we're eating the same. We're actually eating larger portions, gaining body fat and thinking, oh my God, I'm putting on so much muscle. When in reality, we're just gaining unnecessary body fat with maybe a little bit of muscle and you're going to feel stronger. You're going to be able to move more weight if you have more body weight on you. So like you're going to get even, even stronger in the gym as a result. And maybe that just reinforces that belief because we've never been taught how to appropriately eat to build muscle and lose fat simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a a really good thing to point out. Um, and like the other thing too, is you want to think about like where your fat distribution is because, you know, people think like, Oh, if I do this and I gain weight here, or 
Um, I have a client of mine who we thought she could be wellness just based off like her off season, like photos. And we had her posing and I was like, wow, she's gonna be great. And as we started to lean down, I was like, wow, no, you actually just carry a lot of your fat in this area. Um, and it, it had nothing to do with like, I don't know, like, you know, her, like some people just have like leaner midsections. Um, some people don't, they carry more fat in their upper body. Like, so that's yeah. something also to consider is like, it could just be like, like you said, you're like, you're just putting on fat and you just start to see it in different areas. Yeah. I mean, even I was a culprit of this. Like I just, I struggled to get myself to train my arms for the longest time and a lot of my upper body because I carry a much higher proportion of body fat in my back, my arms, my shoulders than everywhere else. Like waist down, like you'd think I'm like 10% body fat if I'm like really lean, but then my upper body, it's like, do you even lift bro? Like <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, the grass is always greener, but yeah. I think it's, it's very interesting that like that it has even influenced me to be like, I don't want to treat my arms because I don't want them to get any bigger. Right. And it's like, no, I just need to continue leaning out. Yeah. I remember how, like you, you know, we would send each other progress pictures all the time from preps. And I remember, you know, you were like a week out or something. We're like your arms, your shoulders finally came in. <laughs> Like literally the day before. <sighs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so just, just something to keep in mind that, uh, and then the other thing too, it's like, you're saying like when you're putting on muscle, you're also probably going to put on fat in the process. So it's not muscle or weightlifting. That's making you bulky. It's just the fact that that's what happens Overeating. when you, yeah. Um, but again, when you lean down, and you do it in a way where you're preserving your muscle mass, like you're going to have a leaner appearance. And we've, we've talked about this before is like most women would benefit from putting on 10 pounds of muscle than they would just losing 10 pounds overall. Oh yeah. Um, that's just going to give you like a way, way, way better look and overall appearance, um, than just losing weight. Um, and not only that, but like muscle is just so beneficial specifically for women. Like it has a lot to do with like preventing osteoporosis, um, just like how you function day to day with like different movements. Um, it helps prevent like injury, um, and, and, you know, of course helps your metabolism and weight management. So, uh, it's just, it's so beneficial. Yeah. Especially as you get older, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, like if you're not strength training, you're going to be withering away very, very quickly. Um, yeah. and, or like withering away while at the same time, probably putting on body fat because your metabolism is quote unquote slowing down, which has, oh, here's a myth that it all goes downhill after 30. Yes. Right. But really the, re the reality of it is, so you think about what happens before 30, before 30, you're a child. Maybe you play sports. Maybe you just run around. Maybe you just have the metabolism of a kid. You're in school. You're walking around with your friends. You're hanging out. You go to college. You're walking around campus all the time. And then you get into your first career, your job, but maybe you still go out with your friends all the time on the weekends and all that. When you hit 30, right. it's like this, it's like, you know, you get married, you settle down, you start to have kids. And then like on top of that, you're working. And so you're, you're basically your lifestyle changes to where there's no more room for you, or you sometimes it's perceived that way. It's like, I have no time for myself taking care of others. I'm just working. I'm just trying to get by. Um, and then it's when we talk to women in their mid to late thirties or forties, where they're like, 
I need to make myself a priority, right? And then it's, it's really not that your metabolism just starts to go to shit. It's that we just stop doing the things that benefited our metabolism in the first place, like living an active lifestyle, uh, maybe going to the gym a lot because it's maybe it's something we had more time for when we were single in our twenties or our teens versus in our thirties, when we're settled down, we're in a relationship, we have kids, whatever it is. Um, and then if you've never done any of those things, then there are obviously benefits to being younger, but then it's the longer you go without those things, the worse it gets. Right. So it's like, if you never had that foundation to begin with, you will just find that your bone density and your, and your muscle mass will decline with age. So if you're not doing anything to prevent that, it's like, we know we have clients in their forties, fifties, probably even sixties that are in the best shape of their life, have amazing metabolisms, have great physiques because they kept control over those variables. Yeah. And I know that another, um, uh, like factor that people will say is, well, my, my hormones have changed. Like as I've gotten older, I'm going through menopause and we're not negating that. Yeah, it's true. It absolutely is true. But lifestyle choices and and those factors that you have in your, in, in your life, like we were talking about, like going to the gym, being active, like the, the food choices that you're making, like having a balanced diet, like that is, is really critical in maintaining your metabolic health. But I think that the other thing too, it's like, when you're in your twenties, you have a much different dieting history than you do when you're in your thirties and forties and fifties. How much Um, metabolic adaptation. Right, right, right. So that's also something to consider. It's like, is it the fact that you're 30 and 40 and, oh, you can't do anything about it. This is just the way it is. Or is it because you've never been successful in the past with diets, or you have this history of chronic dieting and your metabolism is in the tank. And so it's not necessarily that you're 30, it's just the fact that like all of your lifestyle factors, years, right. Plus your dieting history is like contributed to where you are now. That doesn't mean that like, oh, you're in the hole and there's nothing you can do. There are a lot of things that you can do. Um, it, it might take you a little bit more time than someone who comes into the, you know, one of our programs or anyone else's who are eating like 4,000 calories and like, we can do a little bit more. And I feel like, uh, in a quicker time, but Um, it's, it's not to say that like you just blame it on your hormones and you're, you're stuck that way the rest of your life. Well, here's the thing about the menopause, right? It's like your hormones do change. Basically your, um, your ovaries stop making those hormones period point blank. Like you have about 25% of the amount of ovarian hormones in your body at any given time than you do when you are in a, uh, I don't know, ovulating state. What's the word? when you went pre-menopause, right? So 25% of that or less, because the only thing that's making those hormones at that point after menopause is your, what is it? Adrenal glands or hypothalamus is triggering that. I don't know, but anyways, you stop and it does make it much easier for you to lose muscle mass, lose bone density and start to wither away. So the thing about it is that it's almost like 10 times more important that you are doing these things to a greater extent when you are at that age of 50, 55, whatever. And that doesn't mean it's not worth it. It doesn't mean everything goes downhill, but it's like, if this is important to you, then like you need that foundation 
when you're that age. And I arguably, if you're in your forties or thirties, you should start working hard on it now because it is going to get harder. And that's just the unfortunate truth of menopause. It's like, you just don't have those hormones to support keeping bone density and metabolism and things. But if you fight against it actively and you have the habits, the lifestyle changes, the nutrition, the training, you can appear and function as somebody who doesn't have these issues. It's just a matter of the work that you really put in. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing too, I was thinking about, so one of my friends, he works at a nursing home or not at a nursing home, but he works with like the elderly population. And he says like a lot of people come in and they're just so frail and they have no muscle on their body. So when they fall, they Mm -hmm. just break essentially. And then that leads to further complications because they're hospitalized. They can't get up. They can't move. They get pneumonia. Um, and so it's, it's, it is just so protective in so many different ways to have muscle on your body. Yeah. A hundred percent. So that's a good one that we came up with out of the blue. Yeah. That was a really good one. Yeah. Um, I think that that's it. We had, or that's all that we had on our list. Is there anything else that you thought of? No, I'm brain blanking, but if you guys have more myths that you want us to bust, feel free to send us a message because we would be happy to. Yeah. We didn't really give them a lot of time (laughs) between, um, our podcast coming out in this, the part two. So if there is something that you guys think of, um, and you want us to cover, let us know if we get enough, we could always do another part three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome guys. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't already make sure you subscribe to the podcast, you can find both of us on Instagram. You can find me at Christy Lynn fit and Marissa's at Marissa Roy fitness. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope to see you back next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something from it. Please remember that Christina and I are not medical professionals, so if you're going to make any changes to your exercise or nutrition routines, please consult with your doctor or medical team first. Finally, we would love you even more than we already do if you took the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews are how this podcast moves up the ranks and becomes accessible to even more people. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next Tuesday here at the Barbell Lifestyle Podcast.